Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, the last, the series, the lesson before the last lesson in this series of First and Second Thessalonians. Today, I'm going to attempt to combine two lessons into one so that I can finish up on Wednesday with the last two lessons to finish out this series. Would you join me in prayer, please? Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you so very much, Father, and we thank you. We thank you for your guidance each and every day, Father, as you give us the opportunity to use our free will. But at the same time, Father, you give us the opportunity to know what is best and what is not. And, Father, we cannot thank you enough for that. Father, we're so thankful to those who have been traveling and they've returned, Father. We're thankful that they're here safely. Father, we continue to pray for those who are out at this time, Father, and pray for their continued uh, safety in their travels as well. Father, Barbara, and I thank you, Father, for being with us throughout this process, Father, of selling the house and preparing for relocation. We thank you for your guidance in that as well. We thank you for the support of the congregation here, Father, for this endeavor. Father, these things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen and amen. So these two letters, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, they actually have two main ideas there. One is about thanksgiving, one is about teaching. And the thanksgiving has to do with thanksgiving for the faithfulness and the perseverance of this young church there at Thessalonica as they've persevered through all of the adversity that they've faced. Also, we see the important teaching that he's given them concerning our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus' return. So our study today now concentrates on... uh, Paul's second letter where he reassures them that the day of the Lord had not yet come and he said it has not yet come because there were two other events that had to take place first. One's the apostasy the other being the revelation of the man of lawlessness as his restraining influence is removed. Apostasy as we talked about last week is a falling away from the teaching of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus and he indicated to them that this has already begun. So today we look at the possible identifications of the man of lawlessness and his restraining influence and I'm referring you now we had looked at this last week but we were looking at it from a different angle this day we're looking at it from another angle when we talk more about the man of lawlessness so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses uh, chapter 2 rather verses 1 through 10 let's read that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 the Bible reads now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the rebellion being the apostasy apostasy, uh, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So there have been many theories about who this man of lawlessness is. And so I want to present you today with... Um, four ideas that are out there or four theories that are out there. The first one they were saying, well, the man of lawlessness is the Roman Empire and it's easy to see why they would point to the Roman Empire in this regard because the Roman Empire opposed Christianity it demanded worship of the emperor as God and it promoted great evil. The restraining power then was to be the Roman government who worked went about the business of keeping the emperors, if you will, uh, keeping their power in check. The problem is this theory falls apart because the scripture says that the man of lawlessness would be there even at the end and be destroyed by the coming of Christ Jesus, not by the Roman Empire in this particular case. Some think that Satan himself is the man of lawlessness. The idea is that he works behind the scenes, and working behind the scenes, he creates and promotes evil. And then one day he becomes human in some form to personify, if you will, the man of lawlessness. We see this thought seen in different movies like the Exodus, the Omen, Damien, Rosemary's Baby, The Devil's Advocate. But in theory, in this theory, I should say, the Holy Spirit is to restrain and influence. The theory is that the Holy Spirit will be removed at the end so that Satan can take human form and be destroyed by Jesus before he takes over the world. Now, there are some problems with this in the text that we just read, for instance. Verse 9 says that Satan is directing this person, which means Satan would be divided against himself if this were to happen. There is no indication that the Holy Spirit is ever restrained by anyone other than us. We keep the Holy Spirit from working within us, from living within us. Not someone else. No one else can do that for us. In Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 it shows that Satan is being restrained for 1,000 years and the agent of the restraining power is uh, it's an angel, not the Holy Spirit. So before the coming of Christ, Satan deceives the world with great power. But after the cross and the gospel is preached, Satan's power is much diminished. The another one that they like to point to is, is the office of the Pope. Um, the, uh, the institution of the Pope, if you will, within Christianity fits well with this activity of the apostasy and the idea of the son of lawlessness. It is a favorite theory of evangelicals and, and extreme fundamentalists. And some of the uh, pluses for this theory is this right here. It happens within Christianity and it is very visible. It grew out of the roots of apostasy, which sown in the first and second centuries, and then we look at how the reorganization of the New Testament church from a, a local autonomous pastoral system 
to a model of organization based on the Roman uh, uh, hierarchy of government. And it produced four things when we look at that. First, there was a separation that took place between the ministers, uh, from the, the separation from the, between the ministers and those of what would be considered laity, making them the, the these ministers, if you will, they became the the intermediaries between God and the church. And what they ended up doing was uh, creating a class system, if you will. But when we look in in the New Testament. This is what we find, that in the church, based solely on these teachings, every member, according to Revelation 1 and verse 6, is a priest. Okay? Every member has a gift or a ministry, according to Romans chapter 12. So the office of the Pope and this reorganization of the church, it gives special authority to certain people, okay, above the local congregation, and it set in motion a, a pyramid, if you will, of a power that exists in the Roman Catholic Church. But think about what the Bible says. The Bible gives leadership to a group of elders for only one congregation and one congregation only. There is no authority in the church beyond the local level according to the New Testament. Yes, we have elders here, but we have no say-so of what takes place in South Anchorage, in the Valley, or any other congregation in the Lord. Also, with this reorganization, uh, they brought in other offices like archbishop, cardinals, popes. These were inventions of men, and they were not authorized by Scripture, which only recognizes the role of evangel- evangelists, deacons, elders, and teacher. There are no other roles or offices in the church described in the New Testament. Now, this reorganization, what it actually did was put in the hands of men, committees, groups, whatever you want to call it, and they started changing and adding and subtracting from what the Word of God says, from what the teaching of Christ is. Now, some of these changes over the years were as follows. There's infant baptism, which started in the 3rd century. There's confessionals, um, which started in the 4th century. There's... uh, transubstantiation which started in the 9th century, indulgences which started in the, the 15th century, and then the big one, infallibility, which started about 1870. Now, there is another one that was added, and it was brought into being by the previous pope, and it was making Mary a co-mediator, if you will. The idea states that through her suffering, Mary, the mother of Jesus, contributes to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins. In other words, we're saved not by Christ Jesus alone, but by the atoning work of Christ Jesus and Mary, which is another fallacy that, was being, that is being taught by that particular office. Now, what this office also does, it makes itself equal with God in the sense that the office of the Pope claims infallibility in matters of teaching, and then it condemns all who opposes the Pope. It has consistently produced false doctrine, false miracles. It has elevated ordinary people to a semi-God-like role of saint to maintain rulership and credibility with its followers. And all of this was done, is being done in the name of Christ Jesus. Now, some think that the restraint and influence over the office of the Pope is the Roman Catholic Church structure, which has historically fought against that particular office. Many scholars hold this view 
concerning the office of the Pope as the man of lawlessness. It is true that there are many parallels. And yeah, it can be a good argument, if you will. But let's go to the fourth principle. The fourth principle. The last possibility, one of the last possibilities is that the man of lawlessness is the principle of evil and rebellion working in the world and manifesting itself in a variety of people and movements throughout history. Uh, we see the principles of lawlessness working. You can go back to the Roman Empire. You can look at the barbarian wars, the Dark Ages, Nazism and communism, the godless philosophies. And what we see happening in the world today, especially here in the United States, fanatic religious aggression. These and other movements have tried to rule men without respect to God, without respect to the God of the Bible. They have used lies, power, and every evil device to achieve their goals. All have been caught up in the power of delusion, if you will. And this delusion is caused by uh, atheistic, atheistic uh, philosophies or the twisted religion of each age. In addition to these, every age produces a new version or, if you will, a new face of this evil principle. We have witnessed several reincarnations in just the last two centuries, for instance. We see modernism in the 19th century, humanism in the 20th century, a post, uh, post uh, materialism, I first I should say, in the 19th century, humanism in the 20th century, postmodernism in the 21st century, and again, religious fanaticism today. All of these oppose God. All of these destroy true worship. All of these tried to take God's place in his temple. God's place in his temple is taking over our hearts. All of these are trying to take over our hearts. The principle of evil, like yeast, uh, is work without being seen. And it will continue working in this way until it is embodied in one person and one movement, which will be more powerful, more evil, and more threatening to man's soul than ever before. The man of lawlessness will pose the threat because his revealing will be accompanied by personal claims to deity, signs and wonders. Yes. What's that again? No, but I'm almost. Let me, let me finish this right here. So the man of lawlessness will pose a threat because his revealing will be accompanied by personal claims of deity, uh, signs and wonders, uh, visibility in the world on a wide scale, and the understanding that it is the man of lawlessness that is being revealed will be the sign that the return of Christ will be imminent. Remember, Christ Jesus doesn't return until the man of lawlessness is revealed. And who is he revealing him to? He's revealing him to Christians. Jerry. Oh, cool. <laughs> of course. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, is Second Peter two, I think sixteen and seventeen? Mm -hmm. All right. Of course. 
And that's what that said. Okay. And what I was presenting, exactly. Yes, what Jerry said is there was hard things to understand, and we can be satisfied with that. And he's exactly right. And what I was doing in this process was letting you know there are some individuals that think this way, this way, and this way, and this is why. And we, and just like you said, you believe you're right; they believe they're right. And and that's the way it is. But and you gave a rationale for why you believe you're right. These individuals gave a rationale for why they believe they're right. And I'm presenting this. And what I'm saying is, you make your own decision. You make your own decision. I am not trying to say I am right in anything. I'm just giving you information. But we do know this right here. Christ Jesus is going to return. We do know this right here. There are lie. There are people who will lie and deceive us and have us follow them and turn and walk away from the truth of the Bible. We do know that. I think we all can agree on that. Is that correct? Okay. All right. Thank you. So then, uh, okay, I can move to the next section. Jerry, thank you. This, um, I don't need that section anymore. Now, going along with what Jerry just said, I have my opinion too. (laughs) Okay. And my opinion is this. I prefer the fourth theory. I prefer the fourth theory to explain Paul's prophecy, and this is why. The emperors of Rome, they're gone. Satan cannot be provided. We know that since I was Catholic, I can say this. The office of the Pope fails to complete the description of the, the man of lawlessness. What we've talked about in this fourth principle, though it does explain the past, the present, and future without violating any of the facts about the man of lawlessness and the apostasy. As was said earlier, we can choose what we believe works here. We can do that. But I think the fourth theory more accurately explains most of the facts we have been teaching. But you make your decision. So as I close this section up and move to the next one, I will say this right here. We live in a time when both the apostasy and the principle evil are at work in our world and in the church. And we need to do two things in response to this. Number one, we, we need to stay close to the word in all things. Number two, we need to struggle against the principles of evil by preaching the gospel to this world and living holy lives to call the lost in this world to the light and the safety of the church. We turn our attention now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12. And there the Bible says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, at first glance, at first glance when we read this, it seems that God is forcing people to believe a lie, and then he goes about the business of punishing them. Now, if he was doing that, that wouldn't be fair. So the question is, is there a solution? And the answer is yes. But in order for us to understand this solution, to come to this solution, we need to understand how God, God's will 
functions to make sense of all of this. So when we look at the will of God, well, let's look at the will of God in relationship to um, mankind and the material universe. So then, so there are two sides to God's will, which we think about it, it's always been the case. There's a positive side and there's a negative side. Okay, so let's talk about God's direct will, first of all, and we'll see the positive and negative side of that. Some things are done in concert with the operation then of God's direct will. This direct will functions, as I just said, in two different ways. So let's, let's look at it this way. God's will... God wills, rather, directly for good things to happen. For example, God wills the creation into being, and it is good. He willed that Christ Jesus come into this world to save man. He wills that the word be recorded and, and preserved for mankind. He directly wills good things to happen. And in these, we see God's direct positive will happening. But let's go to the negative side. God wills directly for judgment and punishment to happen. For example, we go back in history, we find that God directly willed the flood to come and destroy the earth. He sent plagues to punish the Pharaoh. He directs nations to judge and punish his people, Israel, throughout the ages. He directs, God directly wills negative things to happen to accomplish his justice and his purpose. So then, God directly wills both positive and negative things to happen in the material universe and to mankind. Let's turn our attention to God's permissive will. Now, many events in the Bible and in history occur, but do so in cooperation with God's permissive will. This permissive will will operate in two different modes. Now, let's start with God's permissive will positive will. And I'm going to give you something here that for some people in this congregation, they're going to know exactly what I'm talking about before I even get there. A church was planted in 1944 by five military men meeting in the USO building. Hmm. Sounds familiar? Today, this church stands on the Bar Road at 2700, the Bar Road. Many years later, past 1944, the Anchorage Church supports missionary work around the world and today is seeking more opportunities for missionary work. Now, when we look at this, there was no inspiration from God on this. There was no revelation. There was no miracle here. This was done according to God's permissive positive will. Men are the ones who decided to do it, and God's permissive positive will allowed it to happen. Let's look at his permissive negative will. Some things God permits, some things God permits, but they are not things he devises or he likes. He permits and uses them nevertheless to accomplish his ultimate purpose. For example, Satan tempts Eve, attacks Job manipulates the principle of evil in the world. God did not devise and will these things, but in his sovereignty, he permitted Satan to do these things. We look around, there are illnesses, there are accidents, there are tragedies that happen in the world. God does not will these things, directly invent or send them, 
but he does permit these negative consequences of sin to affect us in different ways. So regardless of what happens, regardless of what happens and under which direction of his will a certain thing falls, God knows in advance what he will directly do and what he will permit others to do. He also knows the consequences and outworking, if you will, of all that is done and how he will use everything to glorify himself and accomplish his ultimate will, which is to justify the faith of the saints of Christ and punish the wicked and unbelievers. So when we talk about the delusion sent on people by God, we must take what I've just said into consideration to understand what Paul is saying. This delusion is sent under God's permissive negative will. God is permitting the deceiver, that is the man, the man of lawlessness, he's permitting him to capture completely, to capture us completely through his lies and deceptions. And he's capturing all of those who do not love the truth. And God doesn't invent the delusion. He doesn't invent the lie. He doesn't approve of the deceiver. But he allows him to function for the time, for a time rather, in the world. The thing is this right here. Those who believe the lies will be allowed to do so without interference from God. These will be judged and judged rightly because they prefer to believe the lies rather than the truth. God sends delusions in a sense that he permits it to happen at the hands of the deceiver and he permits it to work fully on those who choose to believe that lie rather than the superior truth that is sent to us from God through his word. And in the end, his full acceptance of the lie or rather this full acceptance of the lie will prove his judgment to be obvious, just, necessary, and without doubt. There is no doubt or sorrow that these people deserve what they get at judgment when they have chosen to believe the lie rather than the truth. So once Paul finishes describing the events preceding the return of Christ Jesus and the condemnation of those uh, not ready for his return because of their disbelief, he turns his attention to the Thessalonians themselves. Now, oops. since these things are and will be this way, he urges the Thessalonians not to become like the ones who love the lies and what the lies permit them to do, but rather follow the path taken by those who love the truth and go where that road will lead them. Now, there's a way to truth. We turn our attention to verses 13 through 15. Verses 13 through 15. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So Paul here reviews the situation. 
And he tells the Thessalonians that even though there is a wickedness and danger in the world, and it's still that way today, there is still a reason to be thankful especially for the church in Thessalonica, especially for the church here on the bar road. And he gives two reasons. You see, God's choosing is not in a judicial or arbitrary sense where uh, he chooses someone or something over someone or something. Paul refers to the phenomenon where God appropriates or chooses for himself those who are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. They're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit because they trust in the truth of the gospel. God will choose, God will appropriate everyone who does this without prejudice. He will choose for himself all who choose to believe in Christ and has promised to do so from the very beginning of time. In this verse, Paul also says that those who are subject to God's choice of them are those who are transformed by the Spirit because of their confidence in what is true. Now, this is different from the attempt at transforming themselves using systems or or methods that cannot accomplish the transformation that is required by God. For example, people try to change themselves by by the law. They try to change themselves by magic, by idolatry, by philosophy. They can be thankful. He's telling them they can be thankful that because of their faith in the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel is God's solution to sin and death. They have become the chosen ones of God and heirs of salvation. This change is real. This change is personal. This change is eternal. This change is spiritual. Now, turn our attention to verse 14 again. The salvation that they uh, have will manifest itself fully when Christ Jesus returns. The nature of this salvation is such that when he returns, they will share in his glory, which tells us their salvation is sure. This is what the present transformation or sanctification is working toward, that Christ Jesus will return, and when he returns, he will complete what God has said he would. This was the original intention of God's calling of them through the gospel. And the intention is this, that one day they would be perfected in glory, that one day we will be perfected in glory. And this final perfection that I'm talking about, this completion of, of their spiritual transmission, a trans, transformation, I should say, is a sure thing. There is no doubt that it will take place. So they should be thankful for this. We should be thankful for this. In verse 15, Paul summarizes by saying that and he's using the logic if you will if these things are true the logic being then don't be fooled by lies if these things are true then don't be fooled by lies this is how you are to respond to the lies that they are trying to disrupt your faith with lies that are deceiving others and he gave us two ways first to say stand firm In other words, be mature, be strong, be unmovable. Don't lose your composure. Then he says, hold to the traditions. Not just any old tradition. He said, hang on to what they were originally taught by their teachers and mentors. He's talking about himself, Timothy, and Salvinus. And for us today, the person that came to us and taught us the gospel, 
that person has an awesome responsibility. We can't be wishy-washy in our, in our faith and bringing somebody to Christ and teaching them because they're going to be watching us. And we're saying the same thing to them that Paul is saying to the church there at Thessalonica. Okay, we're saying the same thing. Hold to the traditions. And adhere to that word that we find. As Paul said, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. If I stop doing it, you don't. And that's, that's a teaching that I think everyone that teaches someone the gospel, they should say that to them. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So one day I might, one day I might get crazy and stop, but don't you stop. One day I might get crazy and stop, but don't you stop. Yes. Speak up. It's not. It's not. What does scripture say about what you just said? It says the first day of the week, right? The scripture say we come taking the Lord's Supper the first day of the week. Is that correct? Okay, so if we're, when we're teaching someone then, we're not teaching them what everybody else do. We're telling them what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. And that's the example we have. Okay. And I believe that was what I just read. Yes. Oh, I see what you mean. We have instructions. That's the thing. If we, uh, and, and the word command is messed up a lot of people anyway. When they hear command, you, you are it in me versus the instructions. And that's what we are teaching uh, individuals when we are bringing them to the gospel. We're teaching them what the word of God says, not what I think. And if we stick there. I remember when I first became a Christian, I asked a million dollar question. Do I have to come to services more than one time a week? And he, and he said, what he said to me was this, that is not written in the Bible that you need to come to services Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. He said, but you did do this right here. When you started worshiping at this congregation, you said, you're going to work under the oversight of these elders here. Yes, I did say that. He said, well, the elders say he want us to come to, they want us to come to services Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night because we need that spiritual growth. I'm not going to argue with that. 
And you know what? I'm glad I did because I did get spiritual growth from being here Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. I mean, I was 32 years old with a lot of bad habits, okay? I, didn't ra- I wasn't raised in a family with Christians every day. I didn't see none of that. I, I saw what my uncles and aunts were doing every day, and it wasn't a nice thing. So at 32 years old, I needed Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. I'll speak for James on this one. I needed it, okay? I needed it. And so I asked a question. I got an answer. He didn't say you better. He, you didn't. You, you commanded to. He didn't. He said, this is what you said you were going to do. And I did say that, and I kept my word. All right. So you're right, though. We have to be careful with that word tradition because we have to look at what the, what the Bible says they're doing. Okay. Okay. Um, so then we look at verse 16. What we find is that uh, Paul is praying that the same God in Christ who have given them their love will also comfort them with the knowledge that they are saved by grace eternally. He also prays that God will exercise his direct positive will in encouraging them when they are discouraged and help them in what they say and do. Now, I want to go back to verses 13 and 14 for a minute. Now, this passage, what it does is it lists five things that God does and three things we do in uh, regarding our salvation. God's direct positive will operates then in five different ways in regards to us. In that verse 13, we see he loves. The motivation for God saving us is love. He consciously, willfully, and purposely love each soul. He chooses, in verse 13, he calls, and that God intentionally calls everyone to glory through the gospel. Those who love the truth respond to the gospel. He saves. And also we see in 2 Timothy 2 at verse 4, God wants all to be saved. This is his ultimate purpose for us. He provides everything we need for complete transformation and salvation of the soul. And verse 14, he glorifies. His goal is that all who respond to his call will become glorious like his son, Jesus Christ. So when we think about this, if these things are God's direct positive will, then our salvation is certain. Why? Because God loves us always. God never changes his choice. God continues to call. God guarantees salvation. And God has the power to transform us into glory. We have something to look forward to. But see, there's a flip side in things that we must do also. We, as man, we must believe. We must believe the message as true, and we accept it as true. We, too, must give thanks, and we, too, must stand firm in the truth. Man's direct will can reject God's love, refuse his choice, ignore his call, neglect his salvation, and resist the transformation of one's soul into glory. When man directly opposes God in this way, God's passive negative will will allow man to resist him and suffer the consequences. So as we get ready to close, God's direct will was operating from the beginning with the purpose of saving the Thessalonians. And despite their difficulties, so long as they held firm to the truth, what did God do? God would ultimately complete his direct will. 
which is their glorious resurrection and eternal life with Christ in heaven. We can say this about the Thessalonians, but we can say that about those here at Anchorage Church of Christ as well. And now I'm not disrupt, disregarding anyone else. I'm just saying this is where I am. This is where I'm responsible for. So it is God's will to save us, but it is always our will to be saved. Remember that it is God's will to save us, but it is always our will to be saved. So here's the question. Do we do we reject his love by love and sin? Do we refuse his choice by choosing something else other than Christ Jesus? Do we ignore his call by putting off our decision? Do we resist the work of the spirit within us? You see, God oversees our salvation from beginning to end. It is God who comforts and strengthens us each and every day, and he protects us from all things. And the only thing, the only way things can comfort us is when we do good things and say good things, not when we acquire good things. So the point is just right here in all of this, that God's direct will operates for us in the same way and power that it did with the Thessalonians. And I'm talking about us now. Let's not be overwhelmed by the power of evil in the world. Let's have confidence that God is in charge. Let us have confidence that God can save us. Let us be careful not to believe lies, but remain faithful to what we have received from Christ Jesus and the apostles. Let us ask God to direct us. Let us ask God to comfort us in doing good and saying of good so that we can be found busy doing these things when Christ Jesus returns. And if we do that, we will be ready for the second coming of Christ Jesus. Thank you for joining me here tonight, Jerry. Thank you for your comments uh, on Wednesday. We will finish up this uh, series on First and Second Thessalonians. I hope you take the opportunity to read along in your spare time to stay abreast of what we're talking about. Thank you again.